I think good garbage is, is effectively no garbage. It's you know having closed loop systems where waste becomes an input to something else and it continually cycles and is used productively rather than becoming something that's problematic that we don't want that, that creates trouble for us. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Veth Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Today we get to speak to Chris Astrike, who is a teacher, author, editor, founder and innovator. We need all kinds of people in this mission and Chris is definitely one powerhouse who has been trying to tackle the challenge of good garbage from different angles. He has been implementing zero waste programs, uh, using waste streams, reducing waste generation and adopting reuse systems. Uh, he also worked on launching morph bags, which are basically reusable bags made from materials rescued from landfills. He is the co-founder of Circular Design Lab, a self-organized and citizen-driven project based in Thailand that focuses on brainstorming and delivering solutions to environmental and social challenges. Uh, he's also a professor at Thammasat University in Bangkok, Thailand, where he teaches circular economy. He's an author and editor publishing regularly in a place called The Wicked Problems Collaborative and has contributed to Salt Magazine, Harvard Business Review, CSR Asia, and Sustainable Brands. Uh, in today's conversation, we cover the concept of waste, how we can implement solutions to mitigate and repurpose waste streams, and find value in garbage. We also cover the ideas around the importance of storytelling and systems thinking in order to solve environmental problems creatively and proactively. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Hello, hello. I'm so happy to have Chris Osterich. So Chris is a circularity warrior, I would say, and he comes at it from numerous angles uh, through prolific writing and spreading awareness through building brands, enabling collaborations, spreading education and awareness, and also enabling products and ideas. Chris, I'm very excited to have this conversation also because uh, we haven't had anybody educate us in this, in this domain of systems thinking and how do you take a complex problem and, and, and really impact uh, change. So, so thank you for joining us. I know you're a very busy man who moves between two countries all the time. So thank you for taking the time and being on the show. Happy to do so. Thank, thanks for having me on. So I would love to hear about your years growing up. What impacted your life that led you towards this whole domain of sustainability? If you can think of early kind of impacts around packaging. Try, try and think about packaging. I, I guess I don't have a specific story ab about packaging from my early years, but I can remember being deeply impacted by a speaker who came to the um, preschool that I was at. I think I was around four years old. 
And I guess, you know, given the, the timing of this, this, this person was probably a hippie. It was, you know, late 1970s. And he came to speak to us about air pollution and water pollution and things like this and the importance of us changing the way we live um, so that we can have a nice planet for ourselves and, and for those that come after us. That, that's like the only thing I remember from, from the couple of years that I spent going to that school it just really, really uh, resonated with me, even at a young age, that you know, we were doing things that we shouldn't have been doing to the planet and we needed to figure out a different way to live. That's wonderful. Uh, talk to us a little more about your growing up years. Where did you grow up? What was that like pre your graduation? And then, of course, we'll touch on uh, your studies. Sure. So I, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, you know, in the Midwest, and I, you know, I, was, I was on the edge of a relatively big city in the Midwest there, but I had family that, that either lived in rural areas or had homes in rural areas. So I spent a lot of time going out into nature, fishing, hunting, hiking, uh, all, all that stuff, just spending lots of time just wandering in, in beautiful, open, natural spaces. And I guess that really deeply impacted me, the, having those uh, experiences and really feeling close to and connected to nature, lots of float trips and just being able to be out there where, where you had all this open space and could enjoy it and take it in was really, I guess, um, foundational for me. Super. And that's such a common thread in the people we speak to because we are all from a similar domain. And I think one thing that actually connects all of us is this exposure to nature early on and this affinity that gets created with that. And then eventually you go on and do a master's in environment management in Harvard. But then you also, before that, of course, uh, you do a bachelor's in the St. Louis area. Talk to us more about your education and how that shaped your current work. My, my first master's was an MBA, and in that program, I think we spent about one hour on CSR in the entire program. Now, as we as we went through it, I don't I don't think I really knew what I was signing up for when I went into that program. I knew that I was going to learn a lot of different things and um, that it would be potentially good for my career, and you know, I'd understand how businesses were run better because I was mostly kind of in a technical background before that. But as I went through that program, I found that there was a gap for me and, and that I really wanted to learn more to, to go down that sustainability path and to try to kind of bridge those two sides that usually people are on one side or the other fighting. So that's why I went back to school for the master's in environmental management so that hopefully I could be more helpful in, in between those two spaces and, and try to foster positive change. And uh, in between, you also work in Albertsons, which is a big uh, grocery chain, and you make a lot of positive change with the way things are managed in that industry. So it'll be great to hear about your experience there and what happened and how did you impact uh, that space? Sure. So working there was, was really interesting because it was pretty much nationwide. We had 1,400-something stores. We had 400 uh, more small small retail format stores. So there were, there were stores all over the place. We had our distribution footprint. So we had trucks all over the place carrying lots of products around and lots of waste being generated. And the team that I was working with, our job was to try to aim for 90% reduction in waste or avoid, you know, either avoiding or diverting that waste from going to landfill, putting it to productive use. And so what we had to do was figure out, we had to understand what the waste was, you know, what, what were the different types, what were the volumes, what was causing us to generate this waste, and then to start figuring out, well, how do, how do we, you know, on, on the front end, try to reduce the generation as much as we possibly could, 
and the back end figure out, okay, how do we take these things and keep them from, from ending up in the landfill? And that was a really interesting challenge because solving the exact same problem in Boston, Massachusetts, or Chicago, or Texas, or you know, in, in all these different parts of the country where we have different cultures, different circumstances in the cities, and, and environmental differences, that it was really interesting to be solving, trying to solve the exact same problem over and over and over in very different ways and you know trying to win people over who may look at the world very differently and and trying to figure out ways to pull at them and and say okay well this is good for the business or this is good for the environment or this is good for the community and and you know trying to win people over and have them support those programs and and also figuring out how to design these programs so that as often as possible the thing that you wanted to be done to make that the default making that easier than the thing that you didn't want, which had been the default. So a lot of interesting experience through that. Like, I, I remember um, one, of, one of the things that wasn't fun doing, but which made a difference at times was you'd go into a store and you'd get really big resistance to what we were trying to do. It was like, look, we sell groceries. This stuff that you're doing with the trash, you're making extra work for us. It's bad for the business. One, you could win them over with, well, we're, we're putting 40 plus million dollars a year onto the bottom line because of the save, cost savings and the revenue that we're bringing in from, from like things like cardboard that's being sold now. But also we could help them see, look, we can make this to where it's a relatively minor change. Um, so it's not so complicated. And then if people who still weren't uh, on board, then we say, okay, well, now we're going to make what you're used to harder <laughs> and, and we'll make what you need to do easier. I mean, as kind of a last result, the, the trash can would go across the room 20 steps away and the bins for all the things that are supposed to be recycled would be right at the workstation. And then a small waste bin that every time they filled it up, they had to go across the room to dump it. And it wasn't wasn't really something I wanted to do, but it was, you know, one way to, to solve a problem that people were, you know, unwilling to work with us on, on something that was a, what we thought was a pretty minor inconvenience. So. So uh, when we look at the grocery chains and uh, and then that whole space, it's a it's a huge influencer in in terms of you know how packaging happens, how food waste uh, happens, the reuse of uh, like the, the food that is near expiry date. So how bad is it? You have the inside scoop, you know. Like uh, they say that lots of food gets wasted. So that idea, and then how much influence do they have on the products that are in the store? and the packaging that they use? Uh, the, the, the volumes are, are pretty incredible. When I was in the industry, it's been almost seven years. We were really quiet about what we were doing because our CEO did not want to get accused of, of greenwashing. But I believe we were kind of the, uh, the leaders of the industry at the time somewhere in the range of 70% of our waste, if I remember correctly, 65-70% of our historical waste was either being avoided or diverted as we were moving towards that 90% goal. So we felt very good about that, but there was still a massive amount of waste that you know we were trying to get get at that we hadn't gotten at yet. So I think there's there, the just the volume is um, 
astronomical, the amount, amount of waste that's generated by that industry. And, that, and if you think about the packaging waste that's going through those stores and going to the consumer level, it's just incredible because so, so little of that is actually recycled. The, the nice thing on the B2B end, you have a lot of high volume wastes of things that are recyclable and it's, it's relatively easy to deal with those and have those recycled because you can fill up bins and trucks and send them off and have them recycled. Whereas at the consumer level, you have small volumes, they're dirty, it's um, all kinds of different materials, much, much, much more complicated. As far as the, the influence that the industry has, the grocery industry could lead. They, they could absolutely change things. Uh, you, you only have a handful of major players that control a big portion of the industry. I believe that if they, you know, if one of those acted unilaterally, they would end up with benefits from customers wanting to come to them. Now, they may end up with uh, higher costs for at least for a little while, but I believe that they could shift the industry in that direction and they, they would have that first mover advantage. But I think this is the kind of thing where it's a risk adverse climate you now and the, the executives tend not to want to be the first mover when that first mover thing brings on cost. But I, I think there's huge opportunity for just one of those two or three main companies says, you know, what, we're, we're going to make a big shift and that they could drag everyone along with them. Good to hear about the influence that the grocery industry can have, because that's that's a very positive sign. And I've at least seen some grocery chains like there is this Icelandic one, which is in Europe, and they have started doing this, putting this idea that you'll have certain aisles where there will only be compostable packaging that is used. If you would, they won't use uh, multi-layered flexible substrate. So that's a great, great thought from them. And it's good to hear from you that, you know, that can have, have an influence. And I'm sure the consumers being more and more aware, which will help the grocery chains as well. So I'm going to pivot a little bit and uh, come back to your uh, journey how do you end up in Bangkok? And I know there's a lot of work that you do there. Uh, tell us the story about how that happened in your life and how Bangkok became such a central aspect of your being. Well, it's, it's a pretty straightforward thing. My wife is from there. So we, we started going there back um, when we first got married. We've been, been going back and forth for years. And about, I guess it was about seven years, eight years ago, our, our kids were in grade school at the time, and you know they'd spend all of their life in the U.S. up to that point. And we decided we wanted to take a chance and and go to try to live over there and see if we could make that work and give them a chance to know where mom was from and and be closer with her family. And um, ended up being there for about six years and taught at a university and have lots of close friends and all kinds of interesting things going on there. So yeah, I love it there. We would like to take a minute to thank our sponsors. Good Garbage is sponsored by PACA, a family of brands that produces compostable packaging and works to implement regenerative solutions. PACA's new project is to bring compostable food service ware and food carry products to the North American marketplace. Learn more at PACA.com. Now back to the conversation. So you're doing a bunch of things. Let's start with the Circular Design Lab. What do you do there? How are you influencing change through that initiative? Sure. Circular Design Lab is something I started with three of my colleagues at Thomasite University, Courtney, Jet, and Prewa. We came together about four or five years ago, and we wanted to do something with design and systems thinking 
without knowing of the field of systemic design, we, we kind of recreated it on, on our own. And, and looking to do something at the community level, teaching people who felt like they couldn't make a difference around all these growing challenges where they live. Um, and so what we did was just kind of, we, we spent some time meeting up, talking through what we might be able to do with different skill sets that we had, the experiences we had, and, and then we just kind of ran a workshop once over several weekends, over a couple of months, and taught people how to kind of look at a systemic problem. Um, you know, a lot of time spent out in the neighborhood, observing, interviewing people, trying to understand what were the forces that were leading to undesired outcomes around whatever problem it was that they wanted to dig into. And then uh, kind of thinking through what they learned from that, sharing that um, kind of sense-making journey. And then from there, we go into ideation and testing ideas, prototyping, and, and trying to see if we can come up with something to deliver positive change. That leads to people going down one of two paths. Some people come out of that those workshops and they try to start some kind of local initiative or a startup or whatever to try to make direct change. Some people are there more for an academic exercise and community building and they just kind of take what they learn and, and reapply it in their job or in their community and that. And um, just been a really interesting, fun uh, journey. Last couple of years with the pandemic have been much, much harder for us because this is a kind of thing where you kind of, you don't have to be in the room, but it really is positive to be in the room. You get 40 or 50 people in the room and they're kind of around and you, you know, you say, okay, go work on this. And then you, you survey the room as a facilitator at that point and go, okay, they're doing great. They look lost. Let me go work on that. You do that stuff on Zoom and it's just, I wonder who's who's lost and who's doing great and you just feel like you're interrupting the people who are doing well and, and you're you're missing the people who need your help, but kind of getting back to that place where we can start doing stuff in person again, so hoping to get more involved in, in those things soon. It must be really refreshing to be around youngsters and to get all these ideas popping. Can you think of a couple of great ideas that emerged there that really blew your mind in some way, you know, like, oh, this is a great idea. This one didn't come directly out of our workshops, but it was something that came from students from the program that I teach at. In the midst of lockdown period in, in the pandemic, two of our former students found that organic farmers outside of Bangkok were really having a hard time getting their food into to be sold, and they were getting into dire financial situations. And so what they did was just like borrowed a truck and started going and picking up groceries and delivering them and like selling them out of the truck. And I'm probably getting part, you know, some of the details wrong, but basically they, they were basically like a grocery rescue company at first where, where they were working to, to get this food into people. And then it developed into something where they had regular sales at markets. Uh, they would have like go to a weekly market and sell from a truck and they started doing delivery points and things like that. And then they opened up their own grocery store. And now they have like an, an organic grocery store in the heart of Bangkok. And they're absolutely beloved. There's a, there's a huge community of people uh, uh, that absolutely relies on them there. And the neat thing is, is when I look at their website, the things that are they're kind of their pillars of their values and what they're doing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I absolutely love what they're doing and why they're doing it. I can't take credit for any of it. But man, it's it's really cool to see, and it just gives me hope that 
people are starting to look at things differently when they're starting businesses. They see the circumstances we're in that, you know, we can't keep doing the things the way we are. And so seeing what they're doing is just, it's exciting for me. Yeah. And also I, I looked at uh, the, these ideas that you're talking about, and it was also very interesting to see this whole idea of uh, like, like in the States, you have imperfect foods, you know, there's food that doesn't look great, but of course, it tastes exactly the same or even better at times. And, and you know, the idea of taking those products that would be thrown away uh, and putting them into the system. So, so that's also very, very encouraging to see that people in Bangkok are kids in Bangkok are doing that. Any other ideas that come to your mind that emerged from this whole uh, cohort that you've created? There were a lot of ideas that were kind of gathering steam at the beginning of the pandemic. And unfortunately, they all kind of, a lot of them kind of fizzled out or got put on hold. I remember there was one group that was working on a reusable cup program that they were going to be a provider of cups to coffee shops around the center of Bangkok that wanted to, to take part. And somebody could buy into that program and then they go into any of the shops that have them, get a clean one, go and then drop it off wherever so they they were making good progress. I don't know if they've been able to start back up because I'm you know more in the US now. There was one program that was working on basically providing information to people about recycling where wherever they were, you could get in the app and go, "Okay, here's what's able to be recycled in this area. Here's where you need to go. This is what you need to do." And they were work, trying to work with different uh, organizations that were involved in that industry to make sure that you know in in Thailand it's difficult to recycle because most a lot of the programs aren't formal and whether or not something is recyclable is very much a, a very local phenomenon. Um, so there may be a business in your neighborhood that will take this or in the next neighborhood that will take this and there may not be another one for a couple of miles or, or there may not be any more at all around. So having that kind of knowledge is really, really helpful. So um, those, those are a couple that come to mind. So let's move to another of your initiatives, and this is more to do with the industry and, you know, how do you influence change there, the whole idea of linearity to circularity. Talk to us uh, through that, how that came about, and what is it that you're trying to change through this program? Well, Linear Circular is a consulting firm that, that I've been running for several years. What I do there is basically take the knowledge that I gained working in the, in the grocery industry go out to organizations, corporates, development organizations, and try to help train people, help them look at things differently, and help them design and implement programs to, to make you know, positive change. What I'm trying to do long-term there through that, as well as through my teaching, is to help people kind of shift their perspective. I think what we need long-term is the idea of the paradigm shift, where you know the bulk of humanity kind of shifts and says, okay, this doesn't work. We've got to kind of go over here with the way we treat the planet. Climate change is obviously something we've got to get a handle on. And circular economy is, is a big part of that. We stop wasting resources. There's a huge benefit to CO2 of not wasting resources. So we, if we shift the way we use resources, we take a big chunk of what has to be done off the table for the people that are trying to reduce you know, the fossil fuel use in general. And uh, let us take it forward to this idea of morph, which is fascinating for me because uh, 
you know, I've always been troubled with this idea of recycling because I feel there is no such thing. There is basically downcycling where, you know, you take it to a level where it can't be done anymore. And the other challenge is, of course, you know, the whole ecosystem where you collect in one place, transport halfway across the world and, you know, downcycle 50% of it and transport it back. So that's been a, that's been a concern. But what you are doing is collect locally and then upcycle which is wonderful, you know, which is which is very interesting. So talk to us more about Morph and also how and if you think that is scalable and multipliable. What we're trying to do with Morph is an upcycling social enterprise that finds waste sources that would normally go to landfill. So we, we, we talk to business owners, find out what they're making, find out what their waste is that they haven't been able to do something with. And then we look for ways to put that to productive use. And I like to think of this, of this in terms of Ellen MacArthur Foundation's butterfly diagram, where you've got these concentric circles of technical cycles and natural cycles. Um, natural cycles are everything that can grow and be replaced like wood and, and uh, food and those things. Technical cycles are everything that you kind of have one shot at it, and if you waste it, it's gone. That's like fossil fuels and things like that are, are over there. And the circles, what you try to do is use things as productive as optimally as possible so that if you have pristine resources you use them and then you when they're done being used you try to use them as close to i guess as new uh, those resources again and what happens is over time if you're doing this right they slowly degrade and then you get to the point where they're no longer reusable and then you recycle them instead of using them once and then recycling them so what we're doing is we, we find these resources and then we try to use them optimally. Like we have a manufacturer who makes flags and they have a lot of waste of this beautiful material that gets cut away as they make their flags. And we take those and we're making those into totes and other sorts of handbags and things. I mean, this material, it's super strong, lightweight, really flexible and carry a lot. And, and it's got a long life in it, but otherwise it would go to complete waste. So we're trying trying to do that with those. We have another factory we're working with. They make diving suits and we get the waste neoprene and we're making sunglass cases and we're trying to make other products with, with that waste. But you wouldn't believe the volume of waste that comes out of these factories that is just sitting there waiting for someone to do something useful with it. We want to have a positive change directly through the, the waste that we turn into something useful. But hopefully what, what we want to do is prove a model where people around the world go, well, wait a minute, I could do that here. Why wouldn't I? And they start picking up the waste that are, that are local and doing something that's useful in, for the local community. The other thing we're trying to do with that business is partner with informal workers. And so there are two informal seamstress communities, one in Bangkok and one in rural Thailand. We're just in the initial stages of partnering with them. But what we're trying to do is we design products. And then we go to them and we ask them to make these products for us. And then our goal is to pay them more than they would normally make for the same work when they're working for somewhere else. So um, then we pass that cost on to our customers. Customers get a great product, high quality, that's going to last a long time. And then they help the uh, economic circumstances of the informal workers to improve. So that's kind of the model that we're working on. Not quite to market yet, but... We expect to be there soon, and the goal is to go and have, have a, as big a direct impact as, as we can have, but then really to just help people look at it differently, and hopefully lots of people copy us and, and do it wherever they are. 
That's amazing because you're influencing different sides of the same spectrum, where it's people who are working, the consumers, manufacturers, which is such an interesting model. Do you also already look at post-consumer waste as well? Or are you planning to do that? Or it's going to remain pre-consumer because there's so much of that? For now, we're, we're, we're trying to start off just with the, um, the business side stuff, pre-consumer. Definitely interested in working with post-consumer. Uh, the stuff that we're most interested in the short run, there are a lot of other companies working on, you know, turning PET into clothing and things like that. That's kind of taken off over, over the last few years. So I don't think we need to focus on that. But what we, where we see the opportunity that isn't happening so much is at the individual factory level, figuring out what's there and how to do something useful and to show people that, hey, this can be done and you can have a sustainable business out of it and, and do a lot of good. And what do you think of uh, scale when it comes to a social enterprise? Normally, what I see is that social enterprises make great change to a local community, uh, but the size of the challenge is so big. And many times, uh, you know, they are not able to scale to that extent. Do you see Morph itself sort of scaling or do you see, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the replicable models coming in? in order to be able to create that impact? Uh, how, how do you see this uh, going forward? I think more of a replicable model. There's a community in Bangkok of informal waste collectors. They've been, they've been working together basically as a co-op for many, many years. What they did was normally an informal waste collector goes out, they collect their plastics for the day, and then they go to their local waste shop and they sell it for whatever the price per kilogram is. They get their cash. And that's it. That's their income. That's effectively their job. This community, there was, there was a leader of this community who said, well, why don't we become the waste shop and work together and then we can get a better price for our stuff because we're moving one step up the hierarchy. Um, so we all could improve our incomes by doing that. And he spent quite a lot of time talking to people, convincing them and, and slowly winning people over and got to the point where now they've had their own shop for, for many years and expanded into, they have a community garden, they have their own insurance program for healthcare that goes beyond what the, the public healthcare is. Really, really neat example. And the guy that leads that program has gone out and then taught people in other communities what he does so that they can try to replicate what he does. I would love to get to the point where I could do what he's doing and teaching others and saying, okay, here's how we do it, answer lots of questions, support people, and let them figure out how to make it work you know, where they are for the local circumstances, because each of our solutions is going to be local. So telling people do exactly what I've done probably isn't going to make sense. But here's how we went about it. Here's how we solve these problems. Here's how we approach these things, I think could be use really useful for people as they go and look at the specifics of their, their local circumstances and their opportunities and try to figure those things out. That's where I think I could be most useful because if I'm trying to solve problems all over the world or build a team that does that, I think just let people do deal with their local problems. I don't want to run some massive organization anyways. Yeah, and I can see this, uh, at least where I come from, which is India, I can easily see this being replicable because there is a huge community, again, of frack pickers or people who deal with waste. And, and of course, uh, you know, if they can generate a higher income through upcycling, it'll be such a boon in many, many ways uh, to take them out of that circumstance that they find themselves in. 
one of the areas that I'm fascinated with, it's it's how do you tell a story? Things that you talk about, again, are around the ideas of uh, systems change, systems thinking, and then being able to tell a story because that's what really influences us as people because you can you can give all the data that you want. And I remember my wife who comes from a similar background of storytelling and social change, uh, we were just setting up this office and uh, we were talking about this many billion tons of waste. And she was like, nobody understands a billion tons. So she converted it to a number of elephants. So, so it was India, so it was it was easy to sort of understand elephant. And she said, this many thousand elephants every day is the amount of plastic that is going into the landfill. And, and that really resonated. So I would love to learn more from you about how you see it and how can this be applied by people who are in the space to be able to communicate better. Two things. Before I get to stories, let me start with teaching. I do a lot of teaching and a lot of abstract ideas around systems thinking and complexity and things like that. And I think those are ideas that when people approach them at first, they're very abstract. And if they're not grounded in practical examples, they can be pretty confusing and they're not really interesting to a lot of people. It's, it's just like, okay, how does that affect me? I don't get it. I'm moving on. So when, when I teach those, I try to make the language as plain as possible when we're talking about the abstract ideas and then to offer practical examples that help people attach to those ideas, understand what's going on. When we explain systems thinking and what, what a system is, I, I like to use the example of a car. You've got a car, you know, it's there for motion, you turn it on, you drive it around, it gets you where you need to go. The purpose of the car is mobility, right? If you have a room that's full of every single part of a car, you have all the parts of a car, but you don't have a car from a systems thinking perspective. You have to be able to put it together. You have to actually do it and you have to actually make it work. If you leave out one thing or get one thing wrong, that car doesn't fire up from a systems thinking perspective. You don't have a car. You, you've got a huge, massive steel, but you, you don't have a car. So it's about trying to make those easy to understand so that people can find them more interesting and, and relatable so that then you can build on them with exercises that help people start to pick apart the system that they're interested in. And then as far as storytelling, I, I'm, I'm really fascinated with storytelling. I used to try really hard with rational arguments, and I still do this in my writing. I, I will put together these beautiful, at least to me, beautiful rational arguments that are just absolutely watertight. And you know, over time, I think I've gotten to the point where the more important something is, the harder it is to win someone over with just a direct rational argument. But if you can attach a story to it and help people see how something affects an individual's life and, and make that person relatable to whoever the community or the individual is that you're sharing that story with, that can make a real difference in the way people see things. So that's something that we try to do with, with Circular Design Lab. At the beginning of our programs and at the end, we have storytelling phases. So after we go out and we gather lots of information, we do our observations and all that, we come back. And what we try to do is each group, whatever system they're looking at, they share everything that they've got there. All of the, the ideas, the, the insights, the data, whatever. And then we have them work together to tell a story about that, that system. It helps them all get on the same page, first of all so that they're understanding what is the system that they're working on, but also then they, they can relate it to others and say, 
here's the system that we're trying to understand and, and make change in. They, they use that story to, to relate it to others. At the end of our workshops, we have a different storytelling phase. After we've gotten through all the ideation and the prototyping and testing, then we, we tell another story where the groups get together and they tell a story of their journey as well as you know where, where they've come to. So what, what have they learned? Uh, what have they tried? How did that go? And, and we usually try to have a lot of fun with that. So sometimes it's just a presentation. A group's just giving us a pretty straightforward presentation. But our, our, our community's pretty fun. They, they'll typically sit, sit aside and write up a storyboard and they'll like act out a scene or, or you know, just, just have a lot of fun with it. Uh, so they're getting the ideas across, but doing it in a way that's really fun and memorable. Yeah, those are, those are two of the ways that we, we use story to try to really engage people more and, and help them uh, attach to a problem and, and also to make it uh, a lot more memorable. Yeah, it's, it's such a complex uh, system when I look at even the domain that we focus on, which is the regenerative or the compostable packaging, that I find that in isolation, you cannot solve the challenge. This challenge of uh, renewable materials, creation of a product, uh, taking the product and, and being able to market it, and then ultimately being able to close the loop by creating compost. And and that's the that's the complexity of the challenge. And you talk about it beautifully in one of one of your talks that you know, like till you don't look at the entire system, the challenge is not going to be solved. It'll be great to actually hear from you how you see the whole systems issue and how it impacts circularity and and how do you see that collaboration happening so that we can overcome the challenge that we are in. I think there's growing awareness of the need. And there are really good examples of change that's happening. My friend New is a co-founder of a rooftop farm in downtown Bangkok. It's a really wonderful example of a very simple idea, but getting through all of the challenges of getting something like that implemented and then proving that this can be done. They take in all of the waste from local markets and local restaurants, take it to this mall, and they put it up on the roof and they have compost, big composting machine up there. And they grow beautiful produce right in the center of Bangkok, right, right off of Victory Monument, one of the most famous monuments in the city. And then sell it back into the community very, very inexpensively. So they're, they're turning waste that would be going into trucks, producing additional CO2, going and filling up landfill, putting methane into the air. And instead, they're making food for the local community and keeping it really, really inexpensive. I think that's that's an example of what we could do and what we should be doing. I think government and big business are a little behind the curve of where I'd like to see them be, obviously. But I, I think there's starting to be some some positive movement. I've seen in the philanthropy area, there's there's been a, a shift towards funding systems change. There's the Co-impact group is kind of a collaboration between a number of the big philanthropies where they're starting to fund these types of things. And there was a recent paper from the Skoll Center where they're looking at how do you change systems? And they, they identified five different paths that are being supported and tested. And I, I think more is coming because I think there's more and more recognition that trying to address these things as one-offs, as you know, you know, doing single point stuff, you're just leading to more problems somewhere else generally. And I think we're, we're heading towards the right direction, but we have an awfully long way to go. 
Want to be a part of the next big thing in the compostable packaging space? Check out gcahub.com. G-C-A-H-U-B dot com. Create your free account and connect with others in the sustainable packaging industry. On GCA Hub, you can exchange ideas, network, solutions, problems, and learn through curated resources. Let's connect for impact. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, and again, uh, it was wonderful to hear you speak about this idea that, you know, uh, we are trying to annihilate ourselves. You know, the planet will be fine. You know, sometimes we say we are trying to save the planet. You don't need to save the planet, but you know, you're going to you're going to end up getting humankind to become extinct. I have a bunch of questions, and I'd love to pick your ideas around the challenges this whole industry faces. And of course, I focus more and more around regenerative packaging because that creates such a big impact. One of the challenges is the cost challenge. You know, so sometimes people we are not able to convert and this also comes from your albertson's experience so how does one tackle the challenge of the, the customer not the consumer so how does how according to you can that be influenced the, the, that there may be a cost impact for a little while and the customer being all right with that i think it we need we need more awareness i i think we need the young people to lead and demand it that's one of the reasons why I've been teaching at the university level for several years. And I've been looking at moving into teaching at like high schools and, and maybe even younger to try to help bring some more of this awareness at, at an earlier age. Because one, one of the things that I really like to see is our students leave our program and they look at things differently and they make decisions differently than I think graduates of a lot of more standard programs do. You know, I, I want to see, can we, can we get in earlier and earlier and, and just start having a, a ripple effect through society because it's necessary? I don't expect industry to lead. I don't expect government to lead. I expect them to be drug kicking and screaming. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope that they both lead. But I, I expect that communities will just have to demand it. I remember before the pandemic, suddenly there was a big drive to deal with plastic waste in the ocean. And companies that hadn't been as concerned as I would have liked to have seen them, not nearly as, as concerned, were suddenly quite concerned. And they were, they were really trying to push to make a difference. The pandemic kind of crushed that push from, from the communities, but it, it has to come back. If we don't demand it, unfortunately, I don't think it will happen. So we, you know, we've got to get people pushing for it. The other challenge I see is that of performance. So plastics uh, are are so great. And it's, again, human ingenuity that has created it. And they're especially so great at keeping processed food for a long time. And, you know, you can open a bag of uh, chips or crisps and uh, and then you taste it after six months. It looks like it feels like it's been it's been fried yesterday. The smell is intact and the crispiness is intact. And one of the things that happens with natural products is typically the shelf life is a huge challenge. And that's a big issue for customers again. How do you see that argument being made that, no, you still need to try to adapt to a product which may not have the same kind of performance as you're so used to now for maybe 20, 30 years? I think food systems have to change dramatically. I think that there's, there's no doubt in my mind about that. Processed foods are really, really good for their makers. They're not really good for the people eating them. They're not really good for the planet. 
I think a big shift in the way we produce our food and a big shift in the way we move it around and in the way we package it is necessary. We can't continue the systems the way they are. It doesn't work. We talk about food miles as being very important, but there's nuance to that. Food miles on a boat is nothing compared to food miles on a truck. And so figuring out how to be as optimally efficient with the resources that go into our food system and then also reducing the waste that's created. So we, we have packaging that gets the food to people within the time that it needs to and, and in good quality still, but then doesn't create a mountain of waste. In many countries, so much is, is produced and then shipped in, in tiny sachets and they carry a, you know, a quarter of an ounce of something and that's used and then that plastic is waste forever. We just have to change the way we do things. The other challenge that I see is that it sort of relates to what you were saying. The other part of packaging is the whole branding aspect, the whole communication, the aesthetics. And brands typically also use it because of that. You know, they need to be able to make their food look good. They've gone to attract customers. There's a communication that is happening. How do you see that movement uh, shifting so that we have you know, more circularity in the system? I would ban multi-layer packaging immediately if I if I could do it. I mean, it's just, I mean, in, in cases where it is purely aesthetic, you know, just outlaw it. <laughs> there's 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 no justification for that, in my opinion, that you're trying to make your product look nicer because of two three layers of plastic together and they have just a certain luster or, or whatever it is a feel. No, <laughs> just none of that. I, I think we use way too much plastic. I think there's all sorts of plastic that it's so inexpensive that we use it everywhere. There should be a rationalization. I think there should be a lot of plastic use that shouldn't be allowed or it should be expensive to do it, you know, through taxing or whatever, so that we get more balance in how those materials are used. And I think we need a lot more implementation of things like extended producer responsibility, where if a company is going to put these things out in the world, that they're going to be responsible for those resources through life and, and then back at the end. Until we get that, we're going to continue to pile them up all over the world. So we need massive change. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with you on multi-layered substrates because they just... Uh they're not going to go away for 100,000 years. And, you know, the, the one of the things that you spoke about in one of your articles I was reading was that, you know, the plastic challenge is not that old. And you talked about it just being a small, small production in 1950s. And here we are after 70 years, and it's like, uh, it's 1,000 times that amount. And coming back to your multi-layered idea, when, whenever we think about banning plastics as well, nobody talks about multi-layered, which is so interesting for me. And I don't know why that happens. Um, I think the, you know, the understanding of like multi-layer packaging, if you get outside of industry, there's just not a lot of uh, understanding of what that is. I mean, it, the, I think people typically assume whatever the plastic is, is a plastic and not two or three or four melded together. That's one problem. And those tend to be small, much smaller volumes than a lot of other things that are out there, but they're just so problematic in nature. If it were up to me, what I would love to see implemented would be a system where it was, this is what's allowed. You know, okay, you can use PET for these, these types of drinks or whatever, 
but you've got an extended producer responsibility where you have to have a very high collection level and it's got to go right back into the same system. You know, you've got these handful of plastics that are very high volume that we can have a system in place that handles them and then you can ensure that the industry is responsible for it. Everything beyond that is banned with exceptions. Okay, I need to use this plastic for this medical purpose that is good for society. The government can check off on that and then you go and use that. Right now, it's everything's allowed. It's just Wild West. And you take a plastic that would normally be recyclable, and they add coloring or, or they mix in some other plastic to it, and it's immediately a single-use item that is, is it's useless forever after that single use. We've got to get away from that system. And you're right. It's the inks and it's everything else also on top of the substrate that is being created. So, Chris, you've been working with uh, different companies as well in, in your linear to circular idea and uh, and in influencing them to look at their whole system and make change. Can you talk some of about these experiences? How would you like for your organization to become part of uh, this approach of looking at the whole system within an organization and then trying to transform it? How about I, I share the story of a... Um local project I did with my colleague Jet, who is one of the CDL founders. We, we were involved with a, a project where a local community had an incinerator for electricity generation that the waste would go to from the community. The government agency that was in, in charge of that incinerator hired Jet and I to help with a project where we wanted to look at what was happening with the waste that was going to that incinerator because it was very inefficient. There was a lot of stuff going into the incinerator that caused them to use a lot of additional energy on, on the front end so that they could produce energy on the back end. So we held workshops like we do with CDL, brought community members together, got an understanding of what was going on and why, and what were the forces that were leading to the outcomes that they had. And then Jet went into the local community and learned more what, what they were doing and brought community members together to talk about what kind of change would they like to make. Here are the outcomes we're looking for. How can we change the way that waste is collected and, and separated in your community so that we can help the government get what they want and what's going into the incinerator, but also help the community have better outcomes? And what they ended up implementing was a change where it was pretty simple. They had the regular trash still. They had a plastic waste bin that they had at each home. And then they put a strainer by the sink in every home for food waste. So they take their food waste, put it in the strainer, let it dry out a bit, and then they put it into a compost bin. So it was lighter, less problematic with smell and that sort of thing. And they implemented a cart, an electric bicycle cart, that went around and collected those three things. In doing so, the amount of waste by weight that was going to the landfill from that community was reduced something like 75%, uh, because about 60% was food waste. And then they had a much cleaner uh, waste stream going into the incinerator. I'd rather they not have an incinerator, but that incinerator is there and it's going to be burning stuff. So at least by making it a lot more efficient, the amount of energy going in on the front end to get it to the point where they could produce energy on the back end was greatly reduced because they weren't burning off all of the, the moisture in that food waste anymore. They, they had a much more efficient energy production at, at the plant. They had more income coming to the informal workers in the city. And the really, really cool thing out of this was by separating the food waste out and drying it out in a strainer, when we first went there, you'd walk through the street, it smelled terrible. 
because they were putting out food waste in a, in a bin and there was always a bin full of food waste out in front of the homes. After they did this, within a few weeks, that, that smell basically went away. So it was, you know, it was an improvement of quality of life for everyone. Whether or not, you know, they were really participating in the program or not, everyone had the benefit of, you know, having a nice, nicer community to live in. So, you know, the, the, those are the kind of things I want to see happen where you teach these principles to people, whether it's at a, a community level or corporation or whatever, and help them to think through, okay, how can we change what we're doing, get the outcomes that we want, maybe hopefully even better outcomes than we have now, and take away some of the unintended consequences that, that are coming from you know, decisions that didn't consider these things in the past. That's wonderful. And you've been uh, so involved with sustainable brands. And of course, there are lots of huge uh, brands that come there. I clearly see you have such a, such a wonderful way of looking at the entire system and, and seeing how that works. Because again, if I look at it from my perspective, one of the challenges towards the end of compostability is a market for compost because, because you know, today the farms are uh, inundated with chemical fertilizers. And so till you don't create a market for compost, there is no not enough encouragement for composting companies to, you know, enhance their amount of compost. So again, you know, the complexity of the chain comes forth. Well, I think it depends on where you are. Where I'm at in St. Louis, you know, we've got loads of farms outside of the city. Are they interested in getting compost from the city? Probably most of them aren't. The fertilizers they have are, are inexpensive, easy to use, and that's what they know. So it's going to take a, a change in perspective to, to get that to happen. There, there's an interesting community in, in Kansas led by Wes Jackson. The people who are part of that community are absolutely interested because they've learned from him over many, many years, and they understand what they're doing with resources. And so they look at things differently. They farm differently. So I think there is, there's growing interest. It just depends on where you are and, and who's farming and how do they, they look at the world. Where, where I see the real opportunity in the short term is the farm that my friend New runs. That's so replicable. They, they could do that all across Bangkok. And she has replicated it uh, in a couple of additional places and is looking to continue to do so. I mean, it's pretty straightforward now that they've figured it out and know how to make it work that they just have to find a space where there's enough room to farm and they've, and they've got some willing partners to start with as far as collecting food waste. And then they can make it work because they have the entire system instead of being a composter and a farmer and trying to get all these different pieces from individual organizations to work together. And I'm glad you mentioned Wes Jackson. He's just done such amazing work with the Land Institute in Kansas and, and you know, this whole movement around even no-tilling and then growing crops with the soil health being intact. So it's been so fascinating to talk to you. I would love to hear your thoughts on what you think good garbage means and how do you see that being brought forward as we go through life? I, I think good garbage is, is effectively no garbage. It's you know having closed-loop systems where waste becomes an input to something else and it continually cycles and is, is used productively rather than becoming something that's problematic that we don't want that, that creates trouble for us. So it's to me, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's you know what we're doing with Morph doesn't quite get there. It's taking stuff and reusing it, um, but then what happens after it? So that's what we, we want to do is figure out, okay, we're going to make something nice out of this, and then what can we do when people say, okay, this is worn out and we're done with it? Okay, well, then we'll do this with it. 
and, and hopefully over time, we can help business in general see a different way of doing business and changing their products so that we don't have packaging that becomes waste, so that we don't have lots of leftover stuff that's problematic at, at the end of our value chains. That's wonderful. And uh, thank you so much, Chris, for joining in, for sharing your insights, for the work that you're doing in terms of spreading the awareness, the education. It's been delightful to speak to you. Thank you for taking the time and joining us on the Good Garbage Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Good Garbage Podcast. Follow us on social media to never miss an episode. Links are in the description below. I'm your host, Ved Krishna. See you next time.